0: We read God's Word this morning in 2 Timothy 2. I think I mistakenly put in the bulletin 1 Timothy, but the text is 2 Timothy chapter 2 at the very end. The two books to Timothy along with Titus are called the Pastoral Epistles because they're letters written to pastors instructing them with regard to their work and life in the church. And so you have in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy, and giving Timothy very specific instruction as to how to be a good minister. This is God's word, 2 Timothy 2. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness, or hardships, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier." And if a man also strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound, Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful. He cannot deny Himself, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness." And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity." But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord. Out of a pure heart, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strifes, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by Him at His will. That's the reading of the Scripture. And the end of the chapter there is the text, starting at verse 24. 23 says, Know that foolish questions engender strifes. Then now the text, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Grace Protestant Reformed Church this morning celebrates the reception of a new minister, Who is a servant of the Lord. A servant of the Lord. And that's going to be the whole focus of the sermon this morning. That's the expression found at the beginning of the text. The servant of the Lord. Now the text does not describe uh, so much what they do, although it's full of that, as in It describes how they do it. I want to make a distinction between what a minister, elders, and deacons do, and the manner in which they do it. The text places a lot of emphasis on the manner in which they do their work. When you read the scripture in a passage like this, don't fight, is the exhortation at the beginning. Be gentle, patient, and meek. And when you read the Apostle Paul's exhortation to the church at Thessalonica about the servant of God, how he needs to be like a nursing mother and gentle, like a father of little children, you might get the impression that how a man does his work is more important than what he does. Well, of course, you'd never say that. That how he does his work is more important than what he does. And yet, how he does his work stands right up there with the importance of what he does. The truth must be taught. And there's no question about that. But the walk of the minister and the conduct of the man of God. Don't fight with the people of God. Be gentle with the people of God. Be patient and so forth. Is a word that we must hear this morning. Because as much as a man may speak truth, if a man's conduct does not match his speech, it's the end of his work. The servant of the Lord, Reverend Geikelar, and elders who oversee him and people who receive him must teach truth. And he must do that in a very, very careful manner. So let's see the Word of God this morning in this passage under the theme The Service of the Lord's Servant. The Service of the Lord's Servant. And then, Divide it very simply under servant. Look at his position. Service. Look at his work. And then salvation. That is the fruit that we pray that God will give to us. The servant is the servant of the Lord. His service is described as instructing. And the salvation is that God, peradventure, we don't know with certainty that God will give it to everyone with whom we work, is that God will give repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So those are the three parts of the sermon coming from those three parts of the text. The servant of the Lord, that's who your minister is. This text gives us as a congregation opportunity to make a fundamental confession. It's the confession that the Apostle Paul talked about in Romans 9 and Romans 10. It's what every man is going to say at the great assize when every knee bows and every tongue makes a confession. This is the confession. Jesus Christ Lord That's what men will say in the end, whether that confession is wrung out of them by the power of God so that they say it, but they don't like it, or whether that's a confession that comes from our mouths because we are so glad of the truth of it. Everyone will make that confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. The fact that He's Lord... And that's what the text begins with. He is the servant of the Lord. Means that He owns everything. He's a master of all things. He's sovereign over the whole creation. Everything that you and I see and everything we don't see. He's Lord because He made it. He owns it. He's governor of it. No one can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? As you read in the book of Daniel, He is Lord. That's what's in need of emphasizing at the beginning. His authority in the world may not be challenged. His supreme dominion may not be gainsaid. He is simply Lord. Now, what he is of all things by his power, that is, this kind of power, brute power, he is of us by his grace. As a Lord, He rules. It's His power that makes the sun come up in the morning and go down in the evening, or the world to turn, if you want to be more accurate about that. It's by His power that everything happens. That is, His sovereign power. But it's by the power of His grace that He rules us, because He bought us. He owns everything. But in a special way, He owns His people By His redeeming blood. Here's the cross in the text. That's why we need to start here. Because if you don't see the cross, you won't understand anything about what your new minister's work is about and how you ought to relate to the new minister. Jesus Christ is Lord. He bought us. He owns us. He rules us spiritually within us. And we gladly say, Not because we're forced to, but because we want to. He is my Lord. He's my Master because He's been my Redeemer. He shed His blood for me. This man is a servant of that Lord. And he confesses that. I am Thy servant, Lord. The elders confess that. The deacons confess that. In fact, all of us confess that, and yet in a special way, the office bearers make that confession. More than a servant who checks in in the morning and out in the evening, he is a slave of the Lord. The occupation into which this man comes today is slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I come to do thy will O Lord, is what Jesus said. That's the confession that this man repeats before you. To do the bidding of the one who redeemed him. And the bidding of the one who redeemed you. That's no little part of his motivation that he's been redeemed by the blood of that son. No little part, I say, of the motivation for him to do the work that He is called to do. He asks every moment, what is the will of my Master? Yes, but what is the will of my Redeemer? Now there are a number of implications of this teaching here. That the minister is a servant of the Lord. And the first one is that the ministry of the Gospel is full-time labor. It is lifetime labor. There's no question about that in distinction from the service of the elders and deacons, which is three-year term labor. This man's work is lifetime, but now I'm referring not to lifetime service, but to full-time service. He's not like a servant who begins his day at 7 a.m. and ends at 5 or maybe even midnight. He is a full-time He's always the servant of the Lord. In the pulpit, in the catechism room, in the council chambers, and in all of the other areas of his official work, but he's also a slave of the Lord when he's on vacation, when he's chaperoning the convention this week, God willing. When he's engaged in his hobby, if he has any hobbies, in his home and everywhere he goes, he never shrugs off The mantle of the office. He never puts aside his work. The second implication is that he's not your Lord. Jesus Christ is your Lord. He is the servant of the one who is your Lord. And he is your servant. And from that point of view, though I understand the reason that our Dutch forefathers called the minister Domini... There was a certain danger inherent in that title because Domini means Lord. And of course the use of that title for a minister may be defended by the fact that Sarah called Abraham her Lord. And it was referenced to one who they realized is in authority. But sometimes the dominies became Lords and forgot that their Lord was Lord of all, and that they were a servant of the Lord, and not your Lord. That's the point. The minister is not your Lord. Every day, the minister needs to see himself as a servant. And that's a beautiful thing. You've called a man who now sees himself as a servant of your Redeemer, and therefore your servant. The word minister, in fact, means servant. When I was first in the ministry and drove up to a farm in the farmhouse where I was to conduct family visitation, then I heard the father call from the stoop, the minister is here, and all of the children needed to come gathered uh, to the home. And I was a little bit taken aback by that. I wanted to be called the, M- the reverend or something else. And then I realized that that's a good word to describe us. We are servants and we always need to remind ourselves that we're servants we're not your lords the third implication is that along with that his will the ministers and the elders is not your authority your authority is the will of your lord jesus christ and so when office bearers do their work and deliberate in their meetings and make decisions, they always must ask, what does Christ want us to do? How does Christ want us to decide? Burned into the consistory table, it would not be inappropriate. It would be these words. Servants of the Lord. Or do Christ's will so that every member of the consistory, elders, deacons, and minister, remembers that and that's a danger for spiritual men even but especially capable men as the minister is and as the elders are you chose them for that ability that they have capable as they may be they do the Lord's will And then the fourth implication here is that as slaves are always willing to learn and grow, your minister and elders and deacons, no matter how old they are, are always willing to learn. Be teachable, brother, from the elders. In relation to them, you have much more training, but be teachable. You are a servant of the Lord and of the congregation. So, so far we've seen in this first point that we made two confessions. One is Jesus Christ is Lord. And number two, we office bearers are servants of the Lord. Now at the very same time, and to take this one step further, the Lord Jesus Christ exercises His dominion over us by their rule. Now, this doesn't get us into the second point of the sermon yet, but it perhaps could be considered a second part of the sermon, the second point. His work is to rule along with the elders, and that's because Jesus Christ is pleased to use them to rule over you. We don't have time to repeat what passages were uh, mentioned in the form for installation, but Hebrews 13, for example, says obey them that have the rule over you. 1 Timothy 5 talks about the elders that rule well. 1 Timothy 3 says that man must rule these little girls and boy well. Because if he doesn't rule them well, he shows that he's incompetent to rule you. And all of these passages make it clear that the work of the office bearer is to rule. That comes out of the text itself when that word in the beginning of verse 25 says, instructing is used that's a word that's sometimes applied to parents and in that versatile word are two ideas really instructing and disciplining teaching and chastening and those are functions of those who rule as it is the calling of parents to rule so also Office bears. And that's because Christ is pleased, as I said, to exercise His rule over you through agents, through men. Christ rarely rules anywhere apart from agents. You are citizens of the United States of America, or perhaps Canada. Christ rules you through the magistrates. Maybe you are employees. He rules you through your employer. He rules your chil- you children through your parents, and even in creation. I think the Bible makes clear that angels are agents of much of what happens in the world. It's the angels, perhaps, who blow the great winds and throw down those bolts of lightning. Think about that. Read the Scripture in that connection. Whether that's true or not, the Lord Jesus Christ almost always rules through men. And this man and these men are some of them in the church. This is why we're members of a church. That's why we don't say we're a Christian apart from being a member of a church because apart from being a member of a church, we're not ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses agents, elders, deacons, ministers. And that man or woman who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to be a church member is sadly, sadly mistaken. And now all of you who are members... Remember that. Christ rules you through this man and through the elders in the congregation. So now we've made three confessions. Number one, Jesus Christ is Lord. Number two, we all, especially the office bearers, are his servants. And number three, Christ rules us through these servants. How does he do that? He does that by the office bearers, especially now the ministers, teaching us. That's the service of the Lord's servant. His service is to teach us who are sinful people of God from the Bible. And in that way, we pray that the Lord will give us, and that's the third point of the sermon, salvation. The Lord's servant serves us by teaching. He teaches us who are sinful men and women who need to be instructed and chastened. So if in the first point we make one confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, and a couple subordinate confessions, we are His servants, and Christ rules us through servants. In the second point we make the confession, and we are sinners. We are unruly. We are disobedient. We are rebellious. We are intractable at times. We are refractory. That's what confession we need to make about ourselves. And by describing us that way, the text does not mean to imply, and the sermon does not imply, that all of you are rebels. That is openly. And all of you are troublemakers. That is regularly. But it is to imply that you all have the ability to be so because you have that in your nature. And I do. The text really bristles with that truth and sad reality. If you think about the function of a minister and elders, that they're overseers, you, you must think of this posture. The elders and the ministers are always supposed to be watching over the congregation to see how they're doing whether they are hurt and need hospital care, or whether they are inclined to stray and need to be reminded, or whether they are fighting among themselves and need to be stopped. The work of the office bearers is the work of seeing over the congregation. And implied there is that we need that because we're sinners. If you read the chapter, you think about how the Apostle describes that. Verse 14, people are going to strive about words to no profit. Verse 16, they're going to be guilty of profane and vain babbling that increase to ungodliness. And some of them will speak words that eat like canker. I used to think that was cancer, but it's more like a, a canker on a plant that spreads and eventually destroys it. Verse 23, right before our text, foolish and unlearned questions people ask that beget quarrels. That's all they do. But that truth that we are sinners and naturally rebellious comes from that word instructing, which, as I indicated, can mean direct, discipline, and correct. But that's why patience is required. We'll come to that again in a moment. apt to teach, patient. And built in that word is the figure that the minister and the elders and the deacons are going to have to bear heavy burdens of the sinful behavior and conduct of the congregation. They're going to oppose us. That's the text. You must instruct those that that oppose us that say something different than they heard from the pulpit in the preaching. That conduct themselves in a way that is contrary to what the Word of God says. Simply live in a manner that contradicts the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some, this is a description of us, with whom the minister and the elders work, some of us are going to be so careless that we become caught in the snare of the devil himself. Now that's striking. I want to take just a moment to underline that for you, to remind you of what is possible for you. At the end of the text, we pray that these members of the church may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. And that some of these members are taken captive by the devil at the devil's will. The service of the Lord's servant is to teach stubborn, sinful, rebellious, unruly, sometimes intractable, sometimes members who are captured by the devil himself. All kinds of implications here. One of them is that the office bearers must never be shocked at what they see in the congregation, must never be surprised at the sin that appears among the members. It's in us, it will appear. In congregation that doesn't give a license to any of you to say well they need to be able to expect it so I'm going to dish it out to them not at all as soon as we confess this together we pray Lord lead us not into temptation and let not sin have dominion over us and all of the other expressions that the Bible gives us but wisdom for us is to have our eyes wide open ministers elders deacons parents also and all the members have our eyes wide open To the real possibility that sin comes out in very, very ugly, painful, destructive ways. This is what keeps the office bearers awake at night. After the consistory meetings, you may know if you haven't heard that before, often the elders and the minister can't sleep. And they can't sleep because they're troubled by the sins that they need to deal with In the congregation. That's why, though, the text that we read says a minister needs to endure hardships as a good soldier, read books on war to understand what soldiers go through, and then transfer that to the office of the minister and the elders and at times the deacons to understand what they go through. We sinners need to be taught. But then what needs to be kept in mind by all of the office bearers is that for all that sinful refractory people that we are, we are children of God redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, and the Lord says to your minister, now don't fight with them, with us. That won't accomplish my purpose. The servant of the Lord must not strive. The members are going to strive. We must not return that to them. The important calling is to teach, teach, teach. A minister and elders must be apt to teach. And that indicates not just an ability to teach, but an inclination, a desire to teach. The text says, in meekness, instructing those So that at the end of the passage we read, they acknowledge truth. The repentance that they show is going to be by an acknowledging of the truth that they've been taught. And all of the text then shows that the work of the Lord's servant is, and the service that He gives to us, is to teach us teach us. That's true for all of the office bearers. It's especially true of this man who's been installed into your office of minister today. His work is primarily here to teach you. And in the catechism room, to teach you. And at the hospital bed, to teach you. Teach you about the lordship of Christ, of course. That's where we begin. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. He bought us. He owns us. He died for us. And everything else then flows from that. We submit to Him. We gladly in gratitude obey Him. Confess Him. Everything about Him. About what He's done. About what He's going to do. About His character. The minister needs to teach you about the Lordship of Christ. And then about the depravity that's yours and mine. So that we always make a humble confession about Christianity the minister needs to teach you about the power and deception of the devil all of this is coming out of the text now you could spend the rest of your life saying what a man must teach I'm highlighting some of the things that the text says the devil, people of God, is very subtle you're not unaware of his devices are you? some of you today may be taken captive by the devil and are ensnared by him and you won't admit it to anyone. What you need is the minister and the elders to teach you and teaching you will bring you to acknowledge truth and the acknowledging of the truth is your salvation. Warn of the lie that threatens the truth. All of this people of God is simply to say don't strive. Ministers, elders, don't strive with the people of God. That is, don't put up your dukes with them when they put up their dukes to you. When they're quarrelsome with you, don't be quarrelsome back. When they're harsh and bitter and antagonistic and mean, then you are called to be just the opposite. In patience and meekness and gentleness, teach them. Harsh, quarrelsome, sharp, sarcastic, hot-headed are all descriptions of men who may not be in the office of the minister, elder, or deacon. Do not fight with the people of God. Why? Well, there are two reasons. One is as important as the other. First look at Jesus and see how he conducted his ministry. And how the apostle Paul, and we don't know very much about it, who spent three years learning from the very mouth of Jesus himself, learned about the ministry of Jesus. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was threatened, didn't strike back and read what the apostles say about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. That's the first reason that a minister of the gospel must not fight. His Lord didn't. But the second, and the one that comes out in the text mostly, is because fighting does not accomplish the Lord's purpose. Striving does not bring people to repentance. The word of the gospel that the minister speaks as he explains and applies the Bible is the power of God unto salvation. The truth that saves us. What wins souls and what defeats the devil is the Word of God spoken. Because the Word of God spoken from this pulpit and in the catechism room and at the hospital bed and in your living room when the minister is rebuking you or warning you is the only word That will bring salvation to you. The voice of the Lord Jesus Christ does that. That's why the the Lord Himself says in His prayer in John 17, Father, sanctify them by Thy truth. And all of that simply means that the people who are not sanctified, who are living in unholiness, need to be made holy. How? By the truth. Is there an unbeliever in the congregation? Is there someone doubting in the church? Does someone say, I believe, but I have unbelief in me? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God so that the minister needs to be teaching. And are you one that's been enslaved by the devil in some way? You have some addiction, maybe to your screen, maybe to some substance, maybe to some action then look at the text. When the minister teaches, that's how you will recover yourself out of the snare of the devil, you who are taken captive by him at his will. Teach, teach, teach. And so when the text begins by saying the servant of the Lord must not strive that's not the normal way of saying must not it's not a command as much as it is it doesn't make sense it's not fitting for a minister of the lord to fight it's not becoming his office it doesn't match his work because his work is teaching 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 And when your minister teaches, and along with the elders, does that kind of instruction, then you say, that's how the Lord is pleased to save His sinful sheep. Because it's salvation that's in view, really, isn't it? That's not the word that's used in the text, but that's the concept that bleeds out of the text. That's the context of this chapter Remember a few weeks ago I said that the minister is exhorted to be busy in his work because in doing that, he'll save himself and the people who hear him. That's the context of Timothy. And that's what's coming out in the text also. Doesn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians, Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation? And here you have in our text... Repentance, which leads to salvation. Of course, the minister doesn't do that. He can't save you. I can't save you. Reverend Geikelar can't save you. The elders and the deacons can't save you. Only God saves you. And that's why the text says in verse 25, God must give Repentance. He does that. Maybe. In no individual case can we be certain that God is going to grant repentance. And that's why a very unusual expression in the middle of verse 25, if God peradventure will give repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We don't know, but we don't need to know. We may pray, we may hope, we may plead with God, but just as parents don't know whether God will use their instruction to go into the heart of their children. So we don't know whether God will use our instruction to go into the heart of any individual member. But that's okay because that's God's domain and we leave that to God. We just do what we are called to do, and that is teach, and teach, and teach. And in that teaching warn, and in that teaching exhort, and in that teaching comfort, and in that teaching everything else, then we give them to God because the heart is God's domain, and we say, God, grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. God, lead them to that kind of repentance And we trust that He will because He is the Lord of His people, because He bought them. He gave His own blood for them. And though perhaps not every single member here is one of God's redeemed, certainly God's redeemed are here. And He will see to it. He will see to it that His people will come to repentance and to faith and salvation. It's our business to pray. So men and women... And children of Grace Church, pray, pray. Pray first that the Lord will grant repentance to each of us. Not just to those who are under discipline or those who we know are walking in sin. Pray that the Lord will grant repentance every day to each of us. Pray in the second place, Lord, use thy word to work this salvation in us and pray in the third place qualify our new minister so that he may be a faithful teacher of us and that through his work we and our children may have salvation pray amen let's pray Lord God in heaven we thank Thee for thy word, for the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, who makes that word effectual, who turns hearts and breaks them, who bends stiff necks and turns them, who gives light where there is darkness and is pleased to use men like our new minister and our elders and our deacons who is pleased to use men to accomplish such great things Father we are weak strengthen us we are unbelieving give us faith we are sinful forgive us and equip us all that we may be people of God a good witness to the world and humble in Jesus name we pray amen